Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. In this week's podcast, I want to talk about the image problem that impact has got. Now, for some of us, impact is cool, and um, I definitely think it's cool. Uh, And maybe quite a few of you guys think it's cool as well. But the reality is that we do have an image problem. And for many of us, this is far from cool. This is far from motivating. In fact, it is the opposite. This is something that is actually, for many researchers, fundamentally demotivating. It is the latest stick that managers have got to wield against us to steal our academic freedom, to reduce the time that we have to just think, to indulge our curiosity, because we have to measure now not only how excellent our research is, but the impact that comes from our research. Uh, And this image problem uh, is is problematic for, for two reasons. One is that this is meaning that fewer academics are engaging with impact. And uh, it is also meaning that some of us are engaging in impact, perhaps for the wrong reasons, because we're told we have to, because actually it's the only way we can get funding, Uh, not because we actually want to make a difference, because we really genuinely care about the people we're saying we're going to help. And as a result, I believe that the impact agenda is in peril. Uh, Now, yes, it's going to continue, and whether we want to or not, we will continue uh, pursuing impact and measuring impact within the academy. That is where we're at politically at this time. Uh, But I think um, if we don't sort out some of the problems that we have, then uh, there is going to be an increasingly grudging academic community following along with this impact agenda. More concerning to me, however, are some of the unintended negative consequences that arise from the increasing number of conflicts of interest that REF is throwing up for researchers who are now having to engage whether or not they want to. What I'm going to do in this uh, episode is to have a think about some of the motives that underpin uh, what we do and why we engage in impact. Uh, and think about what we can learn from that, both as individuals, but also as institutions, and how we can harness what we can learn about what motivates and inspires us as researchers to start trying to create institutional cultures around impact that nurture and inspire rather than hit us over the head. So we've got a problem that we need to address. Some of us, like me, are really motivated by the impact agenda. We want to motivate our colleagues. uh, And actually, some of us are in roles where that is our job, to try and facilitate research impact more broadly across the institutions or groups that we work with. Whether this is is something that we are passionate about or we're mandated to do, uh, I think you will discover when you start doing this that it is far more than just creating time or providing people with money or skills or resources. Actually, very often, the starting point is that you need to understand how you can motivate others to engage with impact. And the problem is that there are some very deep concerns around the impact agenda. Uh, And I believe that we need to face these head on rather than brushing them under the carpet and saying it's not a problem uh, or, yeah, you've got problems, but get with this. You just have to do this anyway. I want to think about what some of these challenges are, some of the critiques 
Uh, and then we can think about, well, what might we do about this? I'm going to try and talk both from experience and on the basis of evidence. So uh, I will uh, base some of this on two articles that I published earlier this year with Jenna Chubb from University of Sheffield. This is based on data she collected uh, as part of her PhD research in 2011 to 2013. But in my experience, as I've trained around the world, wherever I am training, I hear very similar critiques, very similar issues being raised by academics, which are often actually more serious and more evidence-based than they were uh, at the time that, uh, that Jen conducted her original research. So um, four or five, six or seven, I'll see how, how we go with this. I'm going to try and summarise some, some of the challenges. And, and as I go through these, I want to ask you, are these challenges for you? Are these questions that you've heard others raise? Uh, do these concern you? Uh, and if so, how might we address these? Uh, and, and actually address them, not just kind of say it's not important. So the first is that the research impact agenda is pushing less applied research cultures, say arts and humanities subjects that are not uh, applied uh, or pure sciences, uh, away from curiosity-driven inquiry and towards more instrumental conceptions of research as purpose-driven knowledge production. The idea that knowledge for knowledge's sake is no longer important. In fact, on some moral level, is not as pure a motive as doing knowledge for some, uh, creating knowledge for some purpose. Um, so this is not just about asking questions uh, and inquiring and following our nose and being interested. We have to have a purpose now. Uh, and as a result, uh, the impact agenda is changing the questions that researchers ask in their work. And increasingly, the academy is prioritising questions in the funding proposals that they write that we believe are more likely to lead to non-academic research impact. And so there are questions that we would ask, that we would love to ask, but that we no longer even ask because we don't believe that they will get funding. As a result, the perceived, uh, and I under, under, underline here, the, the perceived quality of research has been compromised by broadening rather than deepening uh, inquiry. Uh, I apologise, I'm going to use a, a, a swear word um, at, at this point uh, because I'm going to quote someone. Uh, and this is a, a heartbreaking quote um, that we used in uh, the most recent paper that was published in the journal British Politics, um, uh, me and Jan's latest paper. Uh, and it's from an uh, Australian uh, academic. Um, uh, and actually, interestingly, uh, having just come back from um, training in, the, in Australia last month, um, uh, Australian academics seem to swear more than the British academics. Interesting observation. Um, uh, maybe I'm overgeneralizing here, but uh, but the quote is, uh, "I'm doing shit research now because that's what I thought they wanted." And for me, that is just a heartbreaking quote. Uh, and for me, it is a misunderstanding of what this is ultimately all about. This is not that you have to do different research anymore. It's about doing the research that you always wanted to do, that you believe is important, but then just asking yourself the question, who might benefit and how? But, but there is this perception that actually, you know what, we're asking different questions, we're not asking the right questions anymore, and as a result, we're broadening rather than deepening and compromising the quality of research. 
uh, I recently blogged um, a few months ago now um, uh, about the conflicts of interest that are increasingly being created for researchers who are funded by or who co-produce research with the users of research. Uh, now, depending on what organization is funding your research um, uh, and how much ownership they have over this, uh, it may or may not be a problem for you. But I've certainly been in the situation where I have done consultancy research and the client is not happy with the conclusion. And you get asked, um, can you tone that down? Uh, can you even change those, those findings? Um, and you need to be very clear and robust on your research ethics and what you are prepared and are not prepared to revisit uh, or, or to do. Um, but increasingly, as we, we seek this kind of funding, uh, these questions uh, are, are raising their head. Uh, and if you've not had training, if this hasn't come to you before, um, and depending on how confident you are, uh, this could put you in a very difficult situation. Uh, one of the things that concerns me uh, about one of the explicit indicators that Australian academics now have to report on, uh, and everyone has to report on this, whether you've got data or not, um, uh, is uh, the, num the, the amount of money that you have got from non-academic sources. Uh, and the more non-academic funding you have, the better. It's an indication of, of engagement uh, as part of the, uh, the engagement and impact framework. Uh, and uh, and increasingly, I think there are going to be incentives from universities to enable us to work in this mode. And we need to be prepared to be very robust in the approach that we take when these conflicts of interests uh, arise. Linked to this, I think the, the assessment and consequent reward of impact, and this does vary from institution to institution and country to country. So in Australia, there, there are no financial rewards linked to impact yet. And I would emphasize yet. I think this is, this is uh, an inevitability. Uh, whereas in the UK, there, there are very clear financial incentives given to institutions, which are more or less than trickled down to research groups um, uh, and others. Um, uh, in the UK, as a result of that, um, uh, and I think as a direct result of those institutional financial incentives, there are now um, career progression incentives. Uh, I'm in the process of doing a survey on this at the moment. Um, and so far, uh, everyone apart from uh, one Russell Group institution in the UK uh, includes impact explicitly um, as one of the many things you can do to get promoted. Uh, the majority of other universities outside the Russell Group that uh, that I've surveyed, who've uh, who've answered this, have also said that they now integrate this. Um, and so, for me, the that kind of uh, institutional but now personal um, reward potentially creates a, a, another level of conflict of interest because now do I disclose to someone that I'm working with that if this collaboration works out for us, then my institution might get some kind of financial benefit and I might get some kind of career reward for being able to do this. And if I don't disclose that that's what's going to happen, uh, might there be a fairly awkward conversation when they come back in a few years' time to ask for a testimonial for uh, an impact assessment submission for example, to the Research Excellence Framework, um, and they ask some questions, and it turns out that, yeah, there's a lot in this for me as well. Um, uh, and do they then feel kind of used and duped? And uh, and does this undermine trust in the academy? Uh, and for me, I really don't know the answer to these questions. Should we be trying to um, be very clear?
clear and upfront and disclose um, that there may be benefits for our institution and potentially for ourselves uh, if our collaborations with people beyond the academy work out and we get benefits for them. Uh, yeah, discuss, think. I, I don't know. I think we have to make our own our own minds up about this. Um, I think that um, then linked to that, that depending on what motivates you, which I want to have a think about in more depth in a moment, uh, then uh, actually you will go about impact in quite different ways. So if I'm fundamentally intrinsically motivated by making a difference, I want to help people, I want to change the situation uh, outside the academy, then I'm going to go to any length. Um, uh, and uh, I will continue for the long haul, even when things get hard. And it doesn't matter if it turns out that they want to use someone else's research rather than my research. The point is I make that difference. Uh, if, on the other hand, this is that I'm trying to get some kind of top-graded case study that I'm going to get marks for, which might translate into money, then, you know what, I'm not going to be quite so committed to this when things start going wrong. And if you're not interested in using my research, then maybe I'm not quite so interested in trying to help you solve that problem anymore. Um, and I think that, that, that then we have the potential for people to actually feel quite used um, as a result of this uh, and to increasingly suspect that we're out for our own gain and this is not actually in their interest or the public interest and we start to get negative unintended consequences from uh, our pursuit of impact. Uh, and finally, this is something, uh, in fact, all of these uh, are effectively hypotheses that I'm working on that's come out of the work that uh, that I've done with Jen. We're pursuing this now in a follow-on study where we're looking at this in the current context uh, and assessing to what extent these are real uh, issues um, and how they can be solved. Uh, and one of the things that we're, we're trying to research now is this idea of um, extrinsic incentives uh, such as career progression or I'm going to get funding, uh, crowding out intrinsic motivations for impact amongst some researchers. Uh, so researchers who say, well, yeah, I used to do impact, that used to be what motivated me, but now this whole impact agenda has come along and it's kind of spoiled it for me because now it feels like I'm partaking in some neoliberal conspiracy, that I'm, uh, I'm doing this now not actually for the right reasons. And there are a bunch of new people who are doing this for other reasons now, and I'm going to leave it to them and get back to my, my research. And uh, and yeah, the, the, the idea that, that, that some of us who used to do this are no longer doing this because of the way in which this is being managed and, and perceived, uh, and the image problem that, that I talked about um, before. Of course, the reverse is true as well, and others um, who had previously undertaken purely theoretical or methodological research uh, are now considering how their work could have a positive impact on society. Uh, and I, I think it's really important to actually get a sense of, well, are there more people in that boat than those who have had their intrinsic motivations crowded out who are disengaging? Uh, and I know many researchers who uh, had always had that in their motivational mix. Yeah, of course, it would be nice to make a difference. But yeah, when I get a bit more time and it never quite makes it up their to-do list far enough to really engage seriously in impact. And having these extrinsic incentives is enough to just make them prioritise it, put it up their uh, priority list. And great, I'm doing it now. Um, and actually, uh, how big is that population? How many of us are now doing this whole impact thing? because 
there are some incentives behind this and we're, we're doing it for very good reasons, uh, despite the fact it was the extrinsic incentive that tipped it over into being something that I actually do uh, rather than just dream about doing. So some problems, um, but uh, but already uh, I hope we're getting a sense that, you know what, well, there are some, some solutions here. We've got a whole load of motivational levers that we can potentially use. Some of them are extrinsic incentives, um, and I'm going to have a look at the range of those that might exist that we can use, uh, and some of them are more intrinsic. Uh, and in both of these categories, there are more useful uh, and more problematic levers that we can pull. Um, so looking from the top down, the, the kind of incentives that uh, that exist. Uh, of course, we've mentioned a few of these already. Uh, I, I may want to get promoted. Uh, I may do this because there's a workload model and I'm going to get some workload allocation that will mean I get uh, more time for my research, for example. Um, this could be research funding. It could be because I want to get uh, an impact case study. It could be because I want to be part of a success story for my group that enables us to climb uh, a, a, a league table. And as a result of that league position, that we will be able to attract new, exciting staff. We will be able to retain our best staff. I'll be part of a vibrant group that is going places. Uh, this could be about the, the funding, if you're in the UK, um, that would come from the government um, as a result of getting uh, a high position in a league like that. Um, uh, and especially if you're at the grassroots, if you are in a university where there is some trickle down all the way to research groups and it isn't entirely top sliced. Uh, I think if you look through this list of extrinsic incentives, uh, I think that the thing which is really positive about the fact that these exist um, and a reason why we might want to uh, engage with these and, and use these is that it sends a really clear message to our institutions, to the people in our groups, that this is something that we take seriously. I'm prepared to put my money where my mouth is. I'm prepared to give you time to get that job done. Uh, we celebrate, we reward this, and we do that in a formal way. And I think that that messaging is important if we actually, as a research group, as uh, an institution, genuinely believe that impact is something that we need to do. So I don't want to undermine these. At the same time, if this is the primary reason and the only reason you do this, then, of course, this becomes something that people start to gameplay with. So, yeah, I want to get a promotion. What is the easiest way I can get a promotion? Um, uh, and a colleague came to me recently for advice uh, in my own university, and there is uh, there are, there are a whole load of different things you can do to get promoted, and one of the things is you can contribute towards uh, an impact case study, uh, and hopefully a good impact case study. And there's some messaging around that, not just any case study. Uh, and um, and the comment was, well, hey, maybe this is actually a quick and easy way to get promoted because I could find out if there's someone else who's got a case study that is well advanced, that is linked to my research area. Uh, and now I can ask them if I can help them and get one of my papers into this uh, and help shape that. And now, great, with fairly limited work, uh, I can make a massive difference here. Um, and uh, and I can and I can get promotion now. If this is <coughs> if this is purely about getting promoted, um, then that's fairly crass gameplay. 
in the case of the, the person who spoke to me about this, he was genuinely passionate about making a difference uh, in this area. Um, but the fact that this was uh, in the promotion criteria was making him think, huh, of all the things that I prioritize over the next year, maybe this is one thing I prioritize more than something else. And maybe this is an efficient way of prioritizing it. Um, and so you begin to see, yeah, if this is purely about promotion and I'm doing this to get promotion and no other reason, then this might go wrong and we might get a situation where people have a conflict of interests uh, and, uh, and we're doing this uh, to use people to, for our own benefit. But of course, it can work the other way. Um, the intrinsic motivations... Uh, can work both ways as well. And for me, uh, I think we always need to try our best to engage with as many of our intrinsic motivations as possible when we think about motivation for impact and how we motivate others to do impact. And if we only rely on these extrinsic incentives, uh, we really increase the likelihood of things going wrong and we begin to create institutional cultures that actually inadvertently encourage game playing. So, uh, yes, some of us may have an intrinsic motivation to make a difference. Great, that's easy. We can key into that. We can um, enable people to achieve their aspirations. We can equip, we can inspire, we can give people skills, we can give people time, we can give people funding to help them achieve that. Great. Um, but what if this is actually that I'm a, a curiosity-driven researcher? This is about um, creativity, uh, whether that's creative freedom to ask those curiosity-driven questions uh, or actually the creative process. Uh, for many of my colleagues, um, whether it's making a difference or curiosity-driven research, actually, it's it's about the end point. It's about the fact that I made that difference and I can measure it. It's about the fact that I got an answer to that question. And for others, it's actually all about the process. You know what? I don't really care if we get an answer. Yeah, that would be nice. That's icing on the cake if we actually get an answer. But the process of researching this just fascinates me. Uh, and again, well, hopefully we manage to make a difference, but whether or not we can measure that, I don't really care. The fact is I'm engaging, I'm seeing those light bulb moments, and that is what gives me that hit of, 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 of yes, I'm doing something that, that, that is worthwhile. Uh, and I think we can key into all of these in, in different ways. Uh, and I think that if you can pair at least one of those intrinsic motives with some of those extrinsic incentives, then we start to create institutional cultures which are much more healthy, that are doing things for deeper reasons than just the kind of the managerial work of running a university and ticking boxes and um, position, positioning ourselves in league tables. So um, let me just give you one more. So there is one more intrinsic motivation which is more problematic, um, and that is, of course, ego. Uh, now, we may frame this in different ways. This may be about getting a legacy. It may be about gaining respect and feeling that your work is valued on more levels at, at, at a bigger scale. Uh, it could be about uh, just getting indications of, of esteem for your CV, for your next job application. Um, but actually, what is driving uh, us here is fundamentally our ego. Uh, and I think that it's worth bearing in mind that for many of us, actually, the, the hit that we get from doing impact is, in part, the fact that this feeds our sense of self-worth and value. Um, so let's not deny that. Uh, let's uh, let's accept that, but let's try and make that more explicit, so that we're aware of how that might play out, 
Uh, and if I'm working with someone who uh, I know is very egotistical, uh, and that is what is their primary driver in everything that they do, and, and you'll know that because there's usually carnage all around them, um, then I'm very careful about uh, anything that might uh, get them to start now going all guns blazing on impact for their ego, because of course, now this is about me, 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 uh, and it's not really about anyone else. Um, and, and I'm making a, a good a good story of this, but the reality I can see is, is something different. Uh, and that carnage will just expand to the non-academic non, non world as well. Um, but taken more healthily, if we're very open and explicit about this, actually, this can be something that we can throw into the mix uh, and that can give us a, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of value, a sense of worth and esteem uh, that can keep us going through the, the hard times of that pathway to impact. So uh, how can we use these different motivational levers to not only uh, make sure that we're doing this for the right reason and to remember the, 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 the diverse and, and rich and beautiful reasons why we can engage in impact, uh, but how can we also use these insights to inspire and motivate others for the right reasons rather than having to only rely on these extrinsic uh, incentives? And... Uh, for me, the first step uh, is to uh, identify individuals uh, that I can work with around these intrinsic motivations. Because for me, this has to be a one-to-one -one thing. Uh, you can't really work with intrinsic motivations um, uh, at the scale of groups because we're all completely different. And at the heart of this, um, uh, and of course at the heart of my book, The Research Impact Handbook, uh, and everything that I do is this concept of empathy. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to identify individuals that I can open a channel of empathy with. Uh, and uh, so the kind of individuals that I'm identifying are influencers who I think are doing relevant work, work that is relevant potentially or could be relevant beyond the academy. And it's not that I'm restricting myself uh, to that small group, but I'm starting there because when I'm doing this one-to-one, -one, this is a slow process. This is going to take time. It's going to take an investment um, of, of real energy on my part. Uh, and so I need to make sure that I'm focusing uh, on uh, a small number to start with that uh, I think could really make a difference in terms of the, the kind of culture that uh, I hope to, to be promoting. So I've got these people who I think um, uh, are potentially influencers um, within uh, a group. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean the professors, the PIs, the, the people at the top. Uh, these are people often um, who have emotional intelligence, who have social, um, uh, who have personal, who have interpersonal power within a group that people respect. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm opening that channel of, em of empathy by trying to just understand where they come from. Uh, I'm building my relationship with them. I'm, I'm trying to get at actually what makes you tick, what motivates you, what inspires you day to day. Uh, is this about impact for you? Uh, do you do this for curiosity? Is it about creative freedom? Is it about the answers or the process? Is it about your ego? Is it actually about just getting the big next big project? Um, uh, am I looking for promotion? Uh, so, so you're opening this up. Uh, now, if this is someone that you are line manager, then you've got a process that's easy. Otherwise, this is a much more informal process. It's going to take a lot more time. 
Um, uh, and uh, and for me, this this has to be authentic. This has to be about uh, opening uh, not only a channel of empathy in order to achieve a job. This is about opening uh, an opportunity for friendship um, uh, as I work colleague. Uh, and I think we, we, we need to be doing this more. If we are to be resilient as a community, uh, this this has to be not about presenteeism, that we're all in the office all the time and that we necessarily are gathering around water coolers or whatever else. Uh, but I think academic community is based on friendships, are based on relationships. We don't need to be deep best friends with everyone that we work with, but we need to be opening these these opportunities. And, and for me, uh, this is about those one-to-one links with colleagues in my group, whether or not I'm in the office all the time. Um, uh, it's about those those meetings over lunch, over coffee, uh, that I make to happen on purpose. Um, so, so you're opening that channel of empathy. You're you're opening the opportunity to 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 come into relationship with people, and you're finding out what makes people tick. And based on what you find, then you can create opportunities for people to engage with impact on the terms that will intrinsically motivate and inspire them. So, um, if this is for them uh, about uh, getting funding, uh, then. Uh, now I have got that on my radar and the next time I see a bit of applied research funding that is in their area, I'm sending this to them. Look, I found some cool um, funding. This is the kind of stuff that you're doing. Is this something that might be interesting to you? They may not have seen it because they're not looking in perhaps quite such an inter- interdisciplinary realm. But hey, you know what? This sounds interesting. Um, and if I could... Would not always happen if I could then actually introduce them to a group of more applied researchers working in this area um, to have a conversation uh, around a particular call, which is always nice. You've got to focus your conversation. Then who knows? Maybe something happens, and maybe they get that big grant that they've been looking for, or they're part of that big team that wins that grant, and they meet that uh, that goal. Now, of course, this is an extrinsic incentive. Uh, And so the whole time I'm asking myself how I can try and then uh, link this back to their intrinsic motives. And so if this is uh, about uh, curiosity, uh, which is in most people's set of motives as as a researcher, then I'm making sure that this is uh, not just an applied research funding opportunity, but one which is directly in their line of work, which is going to help them to deepen uh, the stuff that they are already curious about. Uh, And so now, yeah, they are more likely to engage because actually that inspires me to find out more about this amazing thing that I've been researching with cool new people that will open my mind to these new things. But it's in the context of a more applied project where I get exposed now to working with stakeholders and publics and to the questions that they have and to the challenges that they throw up that mean that I have to do research in new ways that actually fuels that sense of curiosity through the research process and makes me realise that actually, as a researcher, this is a new stream of research I can do. That doesn't mean I have to change my identity. I can still be a pure scientist. I can still be a a non-applied arts and humanities scholar as my main specialism. But I also do this curiosity-driven research in this other context that is more applied that makes a difference. And hey, it's pretty cool because every now and then I can see it makes a difference. And yeah, I'm not going to complain. So... What about the the person who loves curiosity-driven research as uh, a process? And uh, it's not about 
uh, research funding. I just, I'm just curious. I, I, I just, I just want to find out more uh, about the world around me. Um, what might you say to someone like this? Uh, so for me, this is, again, it's about concrete opportunities, but I'm now keeping my ear to the ground and I'm looking for opportunities that might be really interesting for them to engage. So is this uh, a public lecture series? Might you be prepared to do a public lecture and, and actually think about what is relevant to publics from your research as part of that kind of opportunity? Uh, and for something like that, actually, if this is someone who uh, actually needs a bit of an ego boost because yeah, they've had a hard year, um, then that kind of opportunity to showcase their work, to get it made into a video that goes online and to really celebrate what they're doing actually could be a major boost to them as well. Um, it may be that this is actually just about, hey, here's a really interesting event. Um, and I wondered if you might be interested in, in going. It's not an academic event, but it links directly to the stuff that you told me that you're really deeply curious about. Um, and I wonder, might you go and represent our research group? Might you come back and give us some intelligence? Um, and uh, and actually, as a result of engaging with those people in that non-academic society or whatever it is that put on that event, um, you increase the likelihood that that person gets the opportunity to think in new ways about their research, to reframe what they're doing, to get asked questions that actually pique that curiosity and make them think, you know what, engaging beyond the academy actually fuels my curiosity and gives me opportunities to think in new ways and learn new stuff. And what you discover is just even with this very low level kind of thing where you're not actually explicitly uh, having a, a pathway to impact, any specific impact goal, you're making people what I would describe as impact ready. For me, just simply being in the right place at the right time, connected to the right people, means that you are now mixing in the circles that make you visible, whether this is just through online, social media, for example, um, or through going to events uh, and, and mixing socially uh, or professionally with, with new groups. Uh, when an opportunity comes to make a difference, when someone suddenly needs some research, some evidence, when something suddenly becomes topical because it's hit the news, you are the person who is visible. You can ask that question. Uh, and whether or not you can answer it directly, you get involved, you can pass them on to others, but, but actually you get a sense of, hey, this is quite exciting. This is actually really interesting. And, uh, and you're ready to now pursue whatever pathway to whatever impact arises rather than being stuck in your ivory tower. Um, I've got a project at the moment um, where I have a mix of researchers who are more or less engaged with impact. Uh, and one of the things that I'm doing is I'm just putting questions to them. Um, and so the most recent email sent to, to my team uh, was that a government department was asking me for knowledge gaps. Um, and uh, they wanted to know, well, what does the research community think are some of the key knowledge gaps at the moment in this particular area? And so I put it back to my team. This is exactly the kind of thing that some of my more, more curiosity-driven members of the team uh, are, are going to give me some really beautiful stuff and that will actually help them frame, well, where are we at? And you know what? They're going to learn from what comes out of this process to help them understand where the cutting edge is, whether or not this makes a difference. But now when I send this to government and I engage with government with what comes next, you begin to see, well, hey, engaging in this got to help me think more deeply about where the cutting edge is. I got a better understanding of where that cutting edge might be. And there are some benefits coming from this to government as well. 
Um, uh, I've also recently uh, submitted a, a consultation response. Um, and again, a question from the government um, linked to some policy. Uh, does anyone have any answers? Here are some ideas. Um, uh, and what do you think? What research have you got? Uh, and specifically asking questions to some of my less applied team members. Could you get something out of a model that you're working on that might tell us something on this or not? Um, uh, and again, it's getting a sense that actually when you work with people like me who are engaged with the policy community, you get asked some really interesting questions. You have to pull out some really interesting stuff from your data, from your models, that actually starts you thinking along new lines for your next paper, your next grant. Um, and and yeah, you get a sense of, hey, this this is this is cool. I'm into this. I'm interested in this. Uh, and what I want you to, to do really is to, to think, to stand back from this. And as I've been talking, just get a sense of how different that is as a research culture to what many of us feel at the moment as this top-down, institutionally, politically driven impact culture that says you have to get impact for us to tick boxes. It's a completely different thing. There's a there's a there's a, a vitality, a life, an inspirational kind of quality to engaging with people's intrinsic motives and being clever about how we back that up with extrinsic motives. So what is the balance between pulling those extrinsic um, versus intrinsic motivational levers? Should we try and avoid an extrinsic uh, motivational levers altogether? Um, well, uh, I think the overuse of those um, uh, is, is a problem. And I think where you are exclusively, or at least it's perceived that you are exclusively uh, driving impact in these kinds of ways, then you will, perhaps inadvertently, create the perception of a very much top-down managerial culture around impact uh, that may well be perceived and in reality uh, be, be perceived to limit academic freedom uh, and to be something that is instrumentalizing and narrowing um, uh, what impact is uh, in, in your group, in your institution. Um, so I think we absolutely have to avoid it, it being all about that. Uh, it's about uh, getting those in, intrinsic motivations in there as well. Uh, should we only use intrinsic motivations to drive uh, the impact agenda and to create the kind of cultures we want around impact? Well, yeah, it, you can try. Um, but in my experience, uh, there are some who will get with that instantly. And they're so inspired, they're so motivated that impact now gets up their to-do list and they make it happen. The reality is that we are all under time pressure. Uh, and for many of us, I can be motivated now, I can be inspired, but to be honest, it's still number five, number 10 on my to-do list. And no matter how much I want to make it happen, there are always other things that are more urgent, they're more important, I just have to get them done. Um, uh, and that's my research, it's my teaching, it's my admin and the stuff that I am told I have to do that is in my workload model, it's, that's in my promotion kind of plans. Um, uh, and, and actually, uh, coupling a few of these extrinsic incentives when they're kind of more in the background, they're not leading uh, the, your impact culture, uh, is actually really important. Um, uh, and it says a very clear message that this is not just you on your own uh, making this happen, that there is support from your institution, from your research group. There, there are others here who will reward, will celebrate, who will take this seriously. 
um, and actually in my experience very often uh, actually there are, there are a lot of us who uh, are prioritizing this um, uh, who've always wanted to do this uh, who've become increasingly motivated but never did it because actually we never had time and it is these extra incentives that have now given us the deadlines uh, pushed this up our to-do list enough that actually it does happen so uh, I'm going to conclude by just thinking about what is an impact culture uh, and how might we assess the impact culture of our group or our institution. Uh, and I've used this this term, so um, being an academic, I feel like I should probably try and um, define it. So here's my definition. I'll, I'll read this to you and, and then I'll try and unpack it briefly. Uh, so I'm going to define the impact culture as the shared values beliefs and norms of an academic community that support the production of, in brackets, significant and far-reaching, non-academic impacts based on excellent research, which then define the collective identity of that community and distinguish the strengths and foci of one institution from another. Now, having discussed this with a number of colleagues, I think um, there, there are different approaches to this. This is not something I've published. Um, it's something that I'm working on. Um, so uh, give me feedback on this. Um, but I think the first half of this is, is where I'm on safer territory, uh, because I think that cultures are ultimately based uh, on values, beliefs and norms. Uh, and actually, this is actually a sense of shared values. Um, so it's, it's not a sense that we are all completely different and we're all fighting against each other because we have such fundamentally ideologically opposed values. Actually, there's a sense that there are certain things that we share in common at that root level uh, around integrity uh, as a researcher, for example, uh, around the idea that, that research should have value beyond the academy, uh, that, that we can now base an impact culture on. And it's about trying to understand what are those those shared values, beliefs and norms in your group uh, and in your institution and how do they differ between different groups within your institution. But this is the underpinning. And so my definition is this is the shared values, beliefs and norms of an academic community that support the production of impact. So in my definition, this is uh, going to be the production not just of any old impact, but ideally of significant and far-reaching impact. Uh, and of course, this is non-academic impact. And ideally, it's based on excellent research. It's certainly based on research. Whether or not it's world-leading in terms of its originality and significance, this is rigorous research that underpins the benefits that we provide um, to the world as a result of this supportive, nurturing, um, a hopefully motivational and inspiring impact culture that, that we've got. And then the, the second half, which is, I think, perhaps the more questionable half of my definition, is that uh, if you have this, uh, process, this set of values that underpin the production of um, research impact in a healthy way, uh, then that can actually help to define a collective identity. Uh, and in institutions or groups that uh, are particularly applied, for example, uh, very often impact is part of the way in which we describe ourselves to the world. And it's part of our sense of collective identity as a group, that we are here together. We work together because we share this idea that we are together making the world a better place. 
And uh, of course, at, at institutions, we're all trying to work out, well, what are the things that make us distinctive from our competitors? Uh, and I think this is very much an optional part of this. Um, but for some of us, this is about looking at our impact culture and asking, are there things that are unique to this institution, given our history, given our location, given what we do, what our strengths are, that we can actually describe to the outside world as part of our culture that distinguishes us from other places. So let's just quickly look through each of these and I want to ask you some questions. Uh, and what I'm trying to do now is to, to use this as a definition, if you accept what I've described as being appropriate, to interrogate your own impact culture. So you're in a research group, you're in a department, you're in a faculty, you're in a university, wherever you are, uh, think about whatever scale uh, or unit you want. Uh, what I want to know is, what is your impact culture? What kind of impact culture are you in at the moment in your current position? Uh, and how happy you are you with that? And if you're not happy with it, what can you do to change it? And for me, if we understand the different components of what make our impact, impact culture uh, and whether we're happy with them, then hopefully the answers to how we make it better become self-evident. So first of all, let's look at this idea of shared values, beliefs and norms that underpin effective and healthy uh, impact cultures. Um, so I'm asking myself, well, what are the reasons that I do impact? What are the values that underpin what I do? What are the things that I hear other people saying? Can I start asking these people? Can we discuss this as, as a group? Why do we do what we do? Uh, what is the diversity? And what are the things that we seem to, by and large, share in common? So if I look in my own institution, um, I would say that there are in my own school, let's take it at that school, at that level, there are different uh, research groups. Uh, and I would describe some research groups as having a set of values uh, around impact that are, are very pragmatic. Uh, impact is something that we have to do to get funding um, and to retain our competitive advantage through league tables. Um, and, uh, and with that in mind, this is about doing impact as efficiently as we can so this doesn't detract too much from the time we're able to spend on the science. Uh, then there are other research groups within my department that uh, actually, when you listen to what they talk about in meetings, uh, actually this is all about equality. Uh, and there are lots of discussions about equality within the group, for example, and how we treat different people um, and the language that we use. Um, you'd never guess this might be a social science research group. Um, uh, there are conversations about empowerment and disempowerment and the marginalised, whether this is early career researchers uh, or people beyond the academy and the idea that what we do can achieve change, beneficial change that can empower people who are in need that can meet important needs and priorities that have been expressed by people that we want to help, that can bring equality, that can can make the world a better place. And, and you hear this, it comes out of meetings, it comes out of discussion in various different shapes and forms, and you can see, yeah, there is a sense of shared values, beliefs and, and norms, um, and they are practiced and rehearsed and, um, and embedded and, uh, and cemented 
through the the work of that group and 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 how they interact with one another uh, and of course um that will have impacts on the approach that each of those different research groups take to producing impact and the kind of impact that they end up producing. Let's move on then um, to to this idea of uh, our SASA community. Um, so uh, this is uh, about uh, the values, beliefs and norms of an academic community. Um, uh, and the, an academic, academic community that has some form of collective identity at whatever scale. Uh, and so my question to you is, how would you describe your academic community in relation to trust? And if community is all about relationships, then how would you describe the ways in which impact affects relationships between colleagues, um, the levels of trust that there are between colleagues around impact. Um, for example, might there be distrust between natural and social scientists, where social scientists feel used because they get to tack on to the end of a project to do the impact rather than being respected as um, equals in an interdisciplinary team with their own research questions and work packages and, uh, and outcomes on, on a research level. Uh, so, um, I, looking at my own institution, um, uh, that is not a problem. I think um, we've, I'm in a fairly unique department that has social and natural scientists, and there's uh, been a lot of work, especially led by my head of school, to enable us to understand each other, so that we operate in interdisciplinary teams genuinely as equals. And uh, this is one of the few places I've worked at where I see that happening on a day-to-day -day basis, genuinely. Um, so, so for me now, this is a strength, actually, and, and let's, let's build on our strengths in terms of our impact cultures. Um, and actually, we have teams of people who respect each other uh, from their disciplinary background and who can and do work interdisciplinary. Uh, that's not the right word, but yeah, in, a, in an interdisciplinary way, that means that we are ready for impact. If there is a question that does not respect disciplinary boundaries, then we can do this and we can do it well. Um, and, and we're there poised to do relevant, impactful uh, research. Uh, thinking about this perhaps in a moment, negative terms, um, I think that uh, certain groups feel more or less trust to, towards the centre of the university uh, in relation to impact. Um, and that's for, for me and my institution um, all around communication and the fact that in a large uh, institution, uh, there are decisions that are being made necessarily at higher levels uh, in a sense that, well, I have no control over whether or not my impact is going to be supported, whether it will be showcased, whether it will be celebrated or not. Um, uh, and uh, and so, yeah, do I trust other things that come from the centre uh, around impact um, uh, or do I do this based on what are, are the local drivers uh, for me? Uh, and uh, the fact that there may be patchy trust between research departments or groups and uh, a centre may or may not be a problem if you've got a community that works for you at, uh, at that more local uh, at that more local scale. Um, I think that um, one of the things that, that I see uh, in terms of um, the, the kind of the communities that, that build up around this um, uh, are communities that are based around 
um, disciplines in particular that are very applied where impact is just part of our, our DNA um, and actually as a result you just you see this talked about all the time and there's huge amount of trust um, and this is just it's just what we do uh, and it's kind of business as usual and where that is the case you've got something that, that you can build on but of course there are other um, groups where, where actually this is a, a thing which is characterized by distrust impact is not something that we've ever done this is not something that we would ever define ourselves in relation to our collective identity is about the research we do it's about our inquiry uh, it, it's it's not about it's not about impact um, and now uh, actually the the narrative uh, around what we have to do to get funding what we have to do for our university is all about having to make people happy and um, and and actually about distrust finally let's think about then the the production of uh, impact um, uh, and uh, what what is the level of impact that is coming uh, out of the work that you're doing uh, and what is the research that is underpinning this is this research impact or just impact uh, and so I work in um, uh, in universities where actually the impact culture, part of what characterises it is there's lots of impact, but very little in the way of high quality research underpinning it. Uh, people, uh, so this is across different types of universities, uh, departments where you have headhunted people from industry, from um, from practice, from policy, from business, um, and um, and they are still at the leading edge of business, of practice, of policy or whatever, um, and at the same time doing incredible teaching, but they're not research active. Uh, and they're still continuing to generate incredible impact, but on other people's research or on their practice and experience. And actually you've got a problem uh, now as part of an impact culture that is characterized in that kind of way. Of course, the opposite is those groups that um, uh, have done and have always done incredible research, but have never really done impact. Um, and uh, if that's the case, then then understanding that, that that's your strength is great because that is the foundation. Um, but but now that's part of the problem that you may want to try and uh, and try and address is an impact culture which actually has never really valued the impact of our research. It's always been about the quality of our outputs. So, what do you do about this? How would you change an impact culture that you think is going wrong? How do you feel about your answers to these questions? Uh, are you happy with the kind of values and beliefs that, that underpin impact in your group? Uh, is there a community around impact? Uh, do we talk about it all the time because it's just part of what we do? Or do we only talk about this in meetings to do with our latest research assessments? Um, so we talk about impact in REF meetings and nowhere else. Um, it, do you have a, a, a great research base that is generating multiple impacts? Are you spoiled for choice? Uh, or actually, are there problems uh, in terms of the production of impact or the quality of the research that, in, that underpins your, your, um, your impact? And when you put all these three things together, what you have is a characterization of your impact culture. If you are happy with this, Let's identify your strengths. What are the things that you can build on and what can you do to be part of an impact culture that becomes even more like that, that makes those values even more explicit, that builds on that community and extends it and brings others in and can broaden beyond just your research group to the rest of the department, beyond your department to the rest of the university. Um, 
uh, and how can you celebrate the, the, the production of incredible research and impact that is happening? Great. If you're not happy, however, then the question is, well, what can I do to change this? And very often, there's very little that you can do as an individual. Uh, so what can I do to think about these questions at higher levels with people who might have the power to do something about this? Can I start conversations with others? Can I bring this into my research group meetings? Can I start uh, to to change the dialogue um, or at least to make it explicit that there is maybe something that we may need to, to change in our group in this institution? I don't know what your answers are, uh, but I hope that this episode has enabled you to think more deeply about your own individual motives, but in particular at this institutional level, how individual motives actually shape how and what we do in relation to impact uh, and how we can, uh, I would argue, by tapping into those intrinsic motives in an empathetic way tackle some of the endemic problems to the impact agenda that quite rightly many of us object to. I believe it is possible for us to engender more and more positive impact cultures in the research groups, departments, faculties, universities, institutions that we are in. We can do that from the bottom up as communities of people who are passionate about what we do. We can also talk to those with power. Uh, and if you are listening and you have that power, we can, from the top down, start to think about which of those motivational levers we pull and which of them we kind of leave till later or kind of leave more in the background. Uh, and we can become more aware of the kinds of impact cultures that we propagate without even realising it because of the day-to-day -day choices that we make about how we frame and enact impact.